So we're coming to the, the next stage of the day, and this is the time we'd like to uh, focus on taking leave of Lumpur Sumedho. This will be his last visit here in his official capacity. And as I've said it before, we sincerely hope he can come back again, spend some time with us whenever his interest, his leisure allows, and just enjoy himself here. I've made that open invitation. Uh, he was the person who founded the monastery, Lumpur Sumedho, and um, the person who's going to give a short talk now will be Mr. George Sharp. And George was the chairman of the English Sangha Trust back in the early 70s. And uh, it was through George meeting Ajahn Sumedho, who happened to be staying in London briefly, Ajahn Sumedhi was flying back to, to Thailand for America and he stopped off in London and uh, he put up at this tiny little Hampstead Buddhist Vihara in London which George was looking after but it was more or less, it was empty by then and through their meeting and conversations uh, it happened that the English Sangha Trust George went out to Thailand to meet Ajahn Chah and asked him if Ajahn Sumedhi could come over to England and uh, start training here and start spreading the Dhamma here. So that was the the sperm met the egg at that point, you might say. <laughs> and this is what the result is. <laughs> and not just one little monastery, but lots of the little rascals running around. <laughs> creating all kinds of mayhem which these two gentlemen have, have looked after for many years and uh, knotted their brows over, and uh, we love them both very dearly, and we'd like to offer George the chance to say a few words at this time. Um, I don't normally... Uh, write a speech and uh, prefer to wing it really but um, in this occasion I have written one and I did this because I tend to forget things in my old age and uh, and especially important things like words so <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought I'd write something so here it is I'm here today to say a few words of thanks, most importantly about Lumpur Sumedho. And he is going to sit there, serenely patient and accepting, as he always does, while I say nice things about him. <laughs> uh, he, is, he is here today, not simply on account of something I had the extraordinary luck to do many years ago, but because of a monk who created in 1956 the first Sangha in England. His name was Gabalavado, and almost everyone here will never have heard of him. So I'm only saying this now so that now you've heard of him. <laughs> and it was he who founded the English Sangha Trust, which to this day looks after the worldly affairs of this Sangha. He was a visionary courageous and dedicated man, capable of touching the heart of anyone 
who listened to him teach Dhamma, and he certainly did that for me. It is on account of him and Lung Po's teacher Ajahn Chah that you are all here today, and Lung Po sits before you. Now, after 34 years of astonishing development under his guidance, the reach and influence of this Western Sangha is worldwide. Type his name into Google and you get 150,000 pages <laughs> dedicated to him. In his 76th year, he has announced his retirement and I know that his heartfelt wish is to become nobody at all. I have to say that he is my very best friend <clears throat> and so too I know that he has been to every one of you the best friend you could have ever had the good fortune to encounter. Sadly, I have to tell him that his wish to return to life of being nobody is certain never to be granted. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. So, Lung Po, if, if we could maybe entice you up to the Dhamma seat, we have one or two people who would very much like to express their appreciation sort of like on our behalf by maybe offering you little somethings. Um, and if you felt inclined to give us a few words too, that would be wonderful. <laughs> it would be great. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasana Motasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasana Motasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Bhutang Tamang Sangsang Namasami So it's very moving uh, I get choked up, I don't know what to say. <laughs> but uh, this, uh, uh, the development here, the Chitters, it was, uh, it was always like a, a dream come true because uh, when I came to the UK in 1977, I uh, didn't know what to expect. <coughs> Uh, George Sharp had warned me about the Hempstead Mihara <laughs> and, and the idea of, of establishing a forest monastery in the tradition of Lung Po Cha in northeast Thailand. So uh, I remember the first, in 1977 78, we kept looking for land and properties and 
what not in various places in mainly in Wales or the West Country <clears throat> uh, because this part of England was uh, beyond our means. We never thought we'd ever have opportunity to establish any to acquire property in West Sussex. And then through the generosity of uh, Paul James, a uh, uh, man we met on Hampstead Heath, uh, then suddenly we found ourselves with a forest, the Hammerwood, which led to the acquisition of Chitter's House and and uh, and eventually the the uh, Aloka Cottage and the Hammer Pond. So I mean the whole thing. Within within a couple of years, we had probably one of the nicest uh, properties in the whole of the UK. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, uh, George was the one that found this uh, at Chitter's house. It was a derelict building. And uh, where we're sitting now is a derelict coach house. And dog candles and a dilapidated garage and so <laughs> admiring her, how, how it's transformed from uh, those days to the present so it's, it's like uh, I had uh, in my sixth Vasa when I in Thailand <clears throat> I was uh, I had this, uh, I went to India, I went uh, on a tudong in India for about five months and with another monk and we, uh, and, and during that time in India as we, we walked and we, I was trying to live, you know, like the Buddha did, seeing if I could get away with it in India. And this was about 1973, I think. And so, uh, and it was during this time uh, that I felt this uh, incredible gratitude arise in my mind towards Ajahn Chah in Thailand, who'd, who I'd lived with for six years, and uh, who I kind of, uh, after five years, you're kind of, according to the Vinaya, the, the tradition of monastic discipline, you're, you can kind of get away from your teacher, which I did, only to feel more bonded with him in India uh, because I realized that once I got away how much uh, how much I you know the kind of gift that he'd given me and Ajahn Chah was really a kind of marvelous uh, monk who uh, lived in a rather remote part of Thailand Uborn Rajatani is on the Lao Cambodian borders the part of Thailand that joins all three countries together. And uh, it was during that time, it really, you know, the ability to, to practice and train and, uh, in a way with a very wise teacher that, uh, of course, it transformed my whole life. So it was uh, Uborn Rajatani's always been like... Uh, like a rebirth, a place where I was reborn, reborn, born again Buddhist or something like that. <laughs> so then, uh, <clears throat> during this sixth vasa, after, after when, and while I was in India, I thought, how do you, how can you possibly repay a teacher? You know, after all, 
you know, the, the opportunity, the people, the Thai people who'd supported me and and I, I felt when I became a monk in Thailand, suddenly all the doors were open. I felt the whole country wanted me to be enlightened. Even the immigration. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I felt this incredible uh, generosity and eagerness for me to, to become enlightened. And I thought, that, you know, that's, my parents didn't want me to be enlightened. <laughs> So, so contemplating it in this way, I felt, you know, it's what they call katanyu, gateway tea, or it's a real heart-opening experience of gratitude. And uh, it overwhelmed me while I was in India. And so when this happened, then I, I rushed back to Thailand and uh, told Ajahn Chah, I said, uh, I am yours for life, use me as you will. <laughs> He's a, I'm from there, you know, I was born in July, so I'm a Leo, I love grand gestures and <laughs> magnificent proclamations. So, so I, uh, I, I thought that's the way to repay a teacher, is to uh, serve, serve the teacher. And uh, because I could see, you know, that by this time Ajahn Chah is becoming so well known in Thailand and so many monks... Uh, and there are always problems, you know, monasteries, and the world is a problem. So monks were always creating problems, and, and there were many more Western, Westerners who were very good at creating problems. And, <laughs> and so I decided to uh, just uh, devote my life to serving Ajahn Chah. And so that, that eventually led to Wat Banana Chah, uh, which uh, is the international monastery. So Lung Pa Chau wanted me to, to establish this place for training Western people who couldn't speak Thai because uh, in the Thai monastery, of course, it, everything had to be translated from Thai to, to English. And so the idea of Wat Nana Chant was to establish a place where, since I was the only available Western monk, uh, that would be my duty, would be to take charge of this monastery. And uh, I didn't want to do it, actually. last thing I wanted to do is spend my life with a lot of Western monks. (laughs) (laughs) And so, (laughs) but because of my vow, I I did that. And uh, we we eventually established... uh, it's only about four or five kilometers from the Ajahn Charles Monastery. So went there. During that time, of course, it was uh, the, the Vietnam War had, uh, you know, in 1975, the Americans fled Vietnam. And since we were right on the borders of Laos and Cambodia, you know, we heard right, I can still remember, it was one of those days you know, like 9-11 or something, <laughs> which, which you remember, and uh, uh, that the um, Americans had taken this humiliating flight off the top of the embassy in Saigon. <laughs> and, of course, the idea was after the Americans left, uh, Vietnam would go communist, and then the domino theory, Laos, Cambodia, and then Thailand. So... 
you know, we were all prepared. I remember in Thailand at that time, there was this terrible panic throughout the country uh, because there was a strong communist movement in Thailand at the time. And so this, this started me thinking about uh, what's going to happen to... By this time, we had 22 monks at Wat Nanachat, and, and I kept thinking, what's going to happen if it goes communist? So that set me off into considering prospects of returning to the West, and I thought it would be the United States, because the following year, 76, I went back to see my mother, who was very uh, ill, and that led me on to, to I met, uh, I, they lived in Southern California, and then I went to New York and Boston, New England, but nobody seemed particularly interested in me or Buddhist monks, uh, with, and then to I went to London where I met George Shaw, and so there uh, he had he was uh, had he was uh, the chairman of the English Sangha Trust, and so he made this wonderful offer. He said, uh, "We just want you to come here and live, and uh, we'll support you, and so you can live your life as a Buddhist monk in England." And uh, with no kind of strings attached, it wasn't, uh, you know, they weren't going to push me into becoming a teacher or a writer or a missionary or anything else. So I thought, this is indeed rare to have uh, such an invitation. And I felt, uh, you know, that this was the right attitude in which uh, I could, you know, feel, uh, take an interest in and I would consider the possibility. Of course, this led on to uh, this event today. And so the uh, Ajahn Chah, he wanted me to come to England, and and so I did. And uh, and then from that time on, I've been in this country nearly 34 years. So I've lived here longer than any other place. During these 34 years, of course, it's been... Uh, uh, amazing experience. I, I truly love this country. I've even become a British citizen, and uh, and uh, my life here as a Buddhist monk, I have no complaints, no regrets about having uh, followed this determination. And uh, and I well, I've never felt it was it was mine. You know, like what's happened is. It seems like when you look back on your life, you're more like uh, things happen through you rather than me. It's not my plan, not my idea, really. It's not my vision, even, that somehow one seems it has this sense of almost fate or karma, that, that it happened, and I happen to be a kind of vehicle for these, these kind of things to happen. So I, I can't claim on any personal way that, that this is because of me. Uh, but it's because of so many uh, events, situations, conditions that came together at the right time. And so now the uh, opportunity to go back to Thailand has arisen. So this is, and I do have this feeling now that this Ajahn Chah, of course, uh, passed away in in 1992, but still the uh, this determination to serve, you know, uh, the teacher was still never never I never relented, you know, even during the 
dif difficult times uh, that one experiences, I never kind of felt uh, like I wanted to go away or run away or or uh, break this determination. But the past few years, this sense of the it, it's completed now. The sangha here in England has its own momentum, and it's not you know it somehow seems that an opportunity for me to retire because I'm 76 and the retirement age is 65. <laughs> That's for lay people. Uh, in Thailand they say monks never retire. And so, uh, which is probably true. <laughs> but the... Uh, it's this, uh, what, what I acquired from Lung Po Cha was, was a real uh, appreciation for the, for the Theravadan tradition, the structure of the Dhamma and Vinaya. Because most uh, Westerners, most of the expatriate Buddhists that I met in Thailand at the time were interested in Dhamma and, uh, you know, they wanted meditation, wanted to get jhanas and attain states and get enlightened and become stream enterers and arhats and all the rest. But the, um, those that really, uh, and so I was like that. I thought, uh, I just want a, you know, peace of mind. I want to uh, get into nice blissful states uh, because I found the world uh, overwhelming and stressful. And so I started out with that, that uh Desire, and then when I met Ajahn Chah, of course, he he brought to my attention the whole the the integrated relationship of Dhamma with Vinaya, because uh, Dhamma is about letting go of everything. It's about liberation and and letting go, and Vinaya is about form and convention. It's it's all structured and and uh, determined in the past by the Buddha. So you've got this, 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 this structure that, that you have, you take on, that has a tradition dating back to the Buddha in India 2,553 years ago. And so you, you have a structure that's based on, you know, a structure is, uh, is always gives you boundaries, and, and, and it's a way of, of living together in which we agree, agreement, and it's a tradition, so it's not up to somebody's own particular views about change or, you know, trying to get rid of it or change it, but we, the whole point is to surrender to it, to live within it, within the existing structure. So, this, of course, was quite... Uh, Quite a challenge to me because I'm from, uh, you know, I spent the previous years in Berkeley, California, which had no structure. <laughs> Berkeley in those days was famous for its kind of total freedom, you know, hedonistic, uh, pot smoking freedom, and no boundaries, no moral boundaries, just follow your heart, do what you want, experiment with life, try everything. Uh, no forms, no boundaries, just whatever you feel like doing. And then to find myself in 1967 with the most strict monastery in all of Thailand. <laughs> it's, 
I mean, I, you know, you wonder what motivates you to, to put yourself into such a place. But anyway, it, something in me, like this, intuitively I knew this is what I needed. You know, I found a hedonistic life. Uh, it was, I could see it would take me nowhere but d- just to despair. Because, uh, you know, I, I, pretty soon you're just, you're just doing the easiest, most kind of ordinary things. You know, you're, you're drinking too much or smoking too much. Or there's, there's, and it just seems to enervate and, and weaken you in life. And you begin to feel a sense of despair with yourself. So in Berkeley, I felt sense of even, you know, of lack of self-respect and meaningless in, uh, a kind of meaninglessness in life. And a, and a self-hatred. Uh, because I didn't like what I was becoming, just living, yeah, following my desires. And so the, then the events took me to Southeast Asia, which took me to Thailand, and then to Ajahn Chah. So it's like, like the, the whole train of movement from, uh, from a kind of lay life, hedonistic life. Being American, you have... You have so much, so much freedom, and and you you know you you're from a kind of middle class background where you know you just take for granted uh, the luxuries of life and the positions that you you have in the society. Then to live in into a, to adapt to a structure that's so different, so alien to anything you've ever had to experience in your life, because because that was the first. Western disciple of Ajahn Chah, and of course, uh, I had to adapt to everything uh, in the monastery. I had to learn the language, and they spoke a dialect. So I was trying to learn the the, the Bangkok dialect, but they didn't speak that anymore. They spoke Northeast <laughs> Lao dialect, and uh, then I had to learn two languages. Uh, Different kind of food, uh, a, a very strict uh, ancient tradition in a totally different culture in a third world situation. You know, so it's like when you really think of it, I, I uh, you know, I found it a real challenge to me, uh, but I did appreciate it because one thing I did recognize a rare opportunity to live with a really wise monk. Uh, because I never met one that so affected me like Ajahn Chah did. So I felt this uh, strong heart connection with him, like, uh, you know, this, I trusted him. And so therefore I could learn, and I was willing to endure, go through the, the, the difficulties of adaptation and that, that were necessary to live there. Well, now, you know, over the, the years, uh, I've been a monk 44 years, so this is, this is a long time in human terms, <clears throat> most of my life, and have had the chance to really put the teaching to a test. And, um, and when I came to live in England, I had only 10, 10 vasas, 10 years as a bhikkhu. And... Uh, Finding myself in a big city like London, and in a different—you know—I'd never. I'm not 
English, I never lived here before, didn't quite know what I was getting into, but um, I did have this confidence in the actual practice. So during the 10 years that I lived with Ajahn Chah, the, uh, I did get the point, you know, the, the teaching became uh, very much part of me. And, and so because of George's invitation to come and practice, you know, it wasn't me coming to become a, and spread the Dhamma in Europe or, I mean, it wasn't built on a sense of, of me as a person trying to do anything, but just the English Sangha Trust was there, wanted to support Theravadan monks for, so that they live in England and practice, they'd support, give the requisites, the four requisites and so forth. So I thought this is, I could do this. I never intended to become teacher, meditation teacher. Well, I've never written any of these books that that, that had my name on them. <laughs> uh, edited by people like Ajahn Sujito and <laughs> Ajahn Chandasiri, people like that. They do the, all that for me. And so the uh, this is. Uh, I've never, you know, uh, didn't come to to uh, the idea of being a missionary to spread the word really repelled me. So I didn't have any intention to, I wouldn't have come if that was what was expected of me. So it did develop quite naturally in the way we acquired Chithurst, this, this beautiful property and how it developed uh, to Amravati and, and other branch monasteries. So it, uh, it's like a fulfillment of this determination that I made in India, and, uh, and it seems now the appropriate thing to do is to uh, go back and live in Thailand. Because I, I always regretted in many ways having to leave Thailand, because I did like living there, and, uh, and I've always had this uh, strong fascination, interest for Asia, you know, since I was a small child. I remember I'd see, like, Chinese or Japanese people, and I'd be very attracted to them. Uh, and it's so out of context to my social background. <laughs> and, and my, you know, and when I started learning to read, I'd try to read anything I could get on China. So I read children's books on China. And in, in the high school, I read all that was available on China. And when I entered the university in 1951, Far Eastern Institute, studying Chinese. Now, this 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 movement of this kind of a obsessive interest in China, you know, all of Asia or anything, was represented by that one word, China. And eventually, in the, came across Buddhism in Japan when I was in the Navy in 19. Uh, 55 Zen Buddhism and that was that was the point that was the what I really uh, devoted the rest of my life to was Buddhism uh, so that was you know China was just the kind of clue or the the catalyst that moved me in that direction so now I have a chance to go back and live in in Thailand again, and quite looking forward to it. Um, 
the the effect of 44 years of meditation is, uh, you know, I feel that this lifetime has has been a great uh, experience. You know, on a personal level, I feel, how did I ever, what did I do to deserve such a good life? (laughs) And the, uh, because it has been an amazing experience, you know, just for me as a person. And, uh, And also an opportunity to practice with this teaching, the Four Noble Truths. Now, Ajahn Chah was, this was what I really liked about uh, his teaching, was it was based on this first sermon, the Four Noble Truths. And, and I found this, uh, this the most profound and useful and practical teaching of them all. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it gives you, you know, tells you what the problem is, what to do about it, and then you, you reflect on the result. So you, you're always looking at yourself. What is the result of my practice? You know, if it's peaceful or calm or if, if I'm just getting upset or unhappy or whatever, then you realize it's because of, of uh, you know, some kind of ignorance, some kind of blind spot that uh, blinds me from seeing what I'm doing, what I'm grasping. And so applying that over the years here in England, uh, the two years we spent it in uh, London at Hampstead Vihara, then Chithurst, and and uh, and then at Amaravati. Since 1984, I've been living there. Uh, so, and of course, in anyone's life, you're going to have, you know, all kinds of ups and downs, successes, failures. People are going to praise you and then blame you and so forth. So. I've not escaped any of this. You know, there's been plenty of praise, plenty of blame, and disappointments, and problems, and crises, and so forth, just like any other human being would have. So, monastic life doesn't necessarily get you out of it. But it does give you, you know, you've got the tool to deal with change. And this... uh, and to always make that the priority, to, to put these Four Noble Truths in, like they're with you all the time, you internalize them, they're not just something you read in a book, or chant, memorize, but you're actually internalizing them, making them work for you, because they're, they're quite practical, they're not kind of metaphysical subtleties, they're just about suffering, the causes, the, the, uh, the end of suffering, and the way to live one's life, uh, not creating suffering. So I think this is a very, you know, a great thing to to bring into the consciousness of of you all at this time, because uh, the problems that we we personally have in so many ways, and then nationally, internationally, political, economic, social population pressures, environmental problems, they're endless. You know, there's there's always some uh, gloom, doom, shadowy presence uh, in this realm. And, uh, and this realm is a realm where things change, and they don't always change the way that one wants them to change. And, and so our way of dealing with change is observing it. And so this, this is the whole essence and thrust of the Buddha's teaching is this mindfulness, and then there's looking, examining, investigating the causes, 
And then you, through that, you, be, you, you recognize the cause of suffering is your own ignorant grasping of conditions. And once you see that, then you have that insight, letting go of the causes. And through letting go of the causes, then you realize the, the absence of suffering ceases. And that gives you the, what, the right understanding of this perfect understanding, insightful understanding, samaditi, and in how to live one's life, uh, in how to live one's life, the re- remainder of one's life, in this way. Not, it doesn't mean we don't get old, because we get old, get sick, and then eventually die, and you get praise and blame, good fortune, misfortune, whatnot. But not to create suffering onto it, onto the vicissitudes of life, into the experience of life that each one of us has to experience. And uh, this is a wisdom teaching. It's uh, what we call panya or wisdom to look into, discern, and see and know for yourself. So just to recognize that that this uh, teaching now is very much available in this country. Uh, you know, they've got Chithursts, Amaravati, and then we're up at Harnam in Northumberland, Ajahn Meninda's place, Devon, and then in Switzerland, Italy, and so forth. These, <coughs> this teaching now is, and the people, the monks, the nuns who've been practicing it, you know, are, they're not just theoretical Buddhists or missionaries, but you have to practice it. You have to te- put it to the test, and you, you, you know, find for yourself because it is a subtle difference: suffering and non-suffering. It's a discernible difference, but it, it's not obvious. And the, the realm we live in is is a realm of incessant, unrelenting change. So it's all about suffering, the conditioned realm, the aging process, the the you know the emotional habits and the the joys and sorrows of of this realm the the sensitivity of it the the power of this sense realm that we're experiencing through these physical bodies seems you know it seems almost impossible to to not suffer from this kind of relentless impingement on on our just on on our form, you know, on our bodies, on our senses, and then the consciousness that we, you know, that we have is affected by these conditions. So we blindly react and form habits through our lives, which are, you know, create stress and problems for us. Usually our habit patterns form when we're children, and then we, we just carry on till till we die, till we awaken and understand. So this is a, an awakening teaching, uh, and, and it's practical, and I encourage you to try it out, test it out. It is, uh, you know, it isn't, it isn't magical. It's not like, you know, you, you know, what I was hoping for, actually, when I started was get into one of the jhanas and stay there. And bypass, you know, kind of uh, bypass all the suffering of life. 
uh, you know, so I just tried so hard the first when I first, when I was a layman to to concentrate the mind and and just trying to suppress the feelings and 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 uh, yeah, I had a lot of willpower and and uh, determination, but of course it doesn't work, you know. And then the uh, the temporary release is so you know it is has its uh, blessings, but also ends. Where the the mindfulness practice really carries you through to to deal with life and to live your life uh, in a way that uh, you you see for yourself. You know, you're not getting out of anything, but you're understanding this profound, insightful understanding of reality is uh, is what the Buddha teaching is pointing at. So uh, I offer this as a reflection. Uh, today has been a very moving day, having George Sharp here, Mudita, who was one of the early disciples of Lung Po Cha when we first came, first arrived in Hampstead, and Mary Henpen in Pasit. I remember when they were invited to... Uh, they were refugees in a convent in Brighton, and they couldn't speak the language or anything. They looked so pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> and they invited us, uh, the nuns there, the Catholic nuns invited us to give, to perform a, a Lao almsgiving ceremony. So I, I remember the fr- three of us went, myself, an American, a New Zealand monk, and an Italian monk. Uh, this is uh, amazing, you know, here we are, you know, American, New Zealand, and Italian going to a Catholic convent in Brighton perform a Lao almsgiving ceremony. <laughs> I think that's a sign of the times. <laughs> and then uh, over the years to see, you know, to see you all again, and uh, Joan Bond, who was. Uh, one of the welcoming presences of Chithurst Lane. She lives right at the very entrance of Chithurst Lane. And she was absolutely delighted when we arrived. You know, we didn't know what the people were going to think. You know, Buddhist monks walking down Chithurst Lane. We already had uh, certain uh, difficulties. Some people really didn't want us to be here. But Joan was always welcoming and uh, a good friend of the Sangha from the very beginning. And Barry, also. So, uh, I express my gratitude and appreciation for uh, everything in in my life here in England. And, uh, of course, there's so many invitations uh, to come back. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Ajahn... uh, Amaro is will be the uh, abbot, the head monk at Amaravati, and he's in. He would love me to come back. And Ajahn Sujita, he wants to build a kuti for me here, special Lumpur kuti, and so forth. So it's, you get all these lovely uh, invitations, but uh, the future is the unknown. I'm not promising anything, <laughs> and not making any commitments. Uh, uh, I, I like this idea of being free, you know, like open-ended, because my monastic life has been so kind of 
committed to monasteries for all these years, you know, and either through training or or starting monasteries, what Chap and then Chithurst and Amarvati. So I have no intention of starting another monastery. <laughs> so thank you very much. Sadhu, 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 so now we have, uh, they've made this beautiful uh, set of uh, gifts for you all. Uh, the wealthy supporters in Malaysia have have printed uh, these books. Beautiful, uh, Ajahn Menindo kind of designed them. They're called Lung Pa. That's the Thai, Thai word, kind of uh, a respectful but uh, affectionate name for an elder monk. And uh, then the calendars, uh, calendar for next year is devoted to me. <laughs> and there's, there's a... CD of uh, 108 of my profound reflections for you. <laughs> 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 <laughs>